It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Chuck Proudfit, president of Skillsource and founder of At Work On Purpose. Skillsource delivers sustainable growth in sales, profits, and people to client companies through a focus on winning strategies, strong leadership, and healthy cultures. Chuck developed his general management expertise at three industry-leading firms, the Procter & Gamble Company, Ernest & Julio Gallo, and LensCrafters. Chuck earned his academic degree from Harvard University, where he pioneered the school's organizational development curriculum. Chuck is also the founder of At Work On Purpose, a ministry guiding Christians to integrate faith and work. He also serves on the faculty for Transform Our World, an alliance of marketplace and ministry leaders working together to make the world a better place. Chuck holds a black belt in Taekwondo, serves as an elder at Grace Chapel near his home in Mason, Ohio, and periodically leads business people on mission trips to under-resourced countries. Chuck and his wife, Gerald, are the proud parents of Aiden and Maya, both adopted as infants from South Korea. Chuck Proudfit, welcome into the corner office. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> Great to have you here today. And I, I know uh, when I was plugging in the phone and, and saw the 513 area code, it reminded me of my happy days in Cincinnati. And you and I uh, <laughs> actually were at Procter & Gamble together, we, we found out. Didn't know each other at the time. Yes, we were. Walked those hallowed halls around the same time. And uh, it's so funny how people keep their area codes in their cell phones, right? And, you know, it kind of keeps us into that that that, that port of uh, that port of call for, for many, many years. But you still live in Cincinnati, is that right? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we want to hear more about that in some of those early years, but we like to kind of start with, uh, you know, what happened, uh, you know, as you were growing up tell them, tell me a little bit about what your early family was like, life was like, you know, where you grew up and, you know, your parents and what they did. Sure. I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My parents were in graduate school at the university there studying English. They became English professors. And when I was a year old, we moved to Boulder, Colorado, which is where I grew up. I was what some call a college brat, which basically (laughs) means that I was surrounded by academics, professors and their kids, and also by Boulder, which is a a very scenic outdoors kind of community right at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. Beautiful there. Yeah, absolutely. Brothers and sisters? Yes, one sister, three years uh-huh. younger than I am. Yeah, 
Cool. And parents were professors pretty much your whole uh, youth growing up and kind of lived in that environment. Uh, did they move around a lot or, or were you in Colorado for most of those uh, early years? No, we stayed in Colorado most of the time. My parents both taught at the university with a different uh, area of specialty. In my dad's yeah. case, romantic English poets. And in my oh. mother's case, um, women in literature like Virginia Woolf. So they both had cool. niches in their field. But I did spend a year in London in 1973-74. Dad was researching a guy named Walter Savage Lander, who's an esoteric romantic poet. Most of your (laughs) listeners will definitely never have heard of. And my mother, since we were out there anyway, she decided to get a graduate degree in art history as a complement to the study she'd already had. So, both awesome. of my parents were involved academically and my sister and I were just school age and we were attending school. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, uh, did you grow up in a Christian household? Were your parents fairly spiritual in that sense or did that come later in life? That came later in life for yeah. me. My parents had grown up in the Christian church, but they, for different reasons, had walked away from it. So it wasn't part of my childhood, although I yeah. kind of knew it was out there. Right, right. Well, who, what were the kinds of things that inspired you growing up? Were there, you know, specific people, coaches, perhaps teachers that, you know, had an impact on you and during those early days that, you know, kind of made a made a formative path for you to 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 follow? Looking back at it, I think there were a couple things. One of them was just because of the educational environment in which I grew up, learning was prized. Yeah. And so when I would have an exceptional teacher or learning experience, that was something very significant for me. It was something that would catch my attention because in my family, we were always calling that out. (laughs) I remember music was something I did quite a bit with growing up. I was um, in the orchestra, the band, the jazz band, and I spent a couple summers at Interlochen Music Camp, which is a, a really prestigious place to do some early life music work with musicians that came from different parts of the world. So that also was part of my upbringing. And the one other thing that comes to mind since you asked was an annual conference in Boulder called the Mm. World Affairs Conference. And what would happen is that people like my parents would host a guest and there were hundreds that would come into the city and then they would gather together for symposiums on different kinds of world events. But because these people stayed in our homes, we got a chance to get to know them. And these were really remarkable, accomplished yeah. figures from all kinds of professional life. So that was a all third touch point for me. They, all over the world. Yeah. Wow. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. Really broadened your horizon, I'm sure. As a younger yes. Child. Yeah. And uh, it goes without saying, I'm sure you were a pretty good student in school. I, I can't imagine coming home with, you know, D's and F's with your parents being professors. <laughs> <laughs> that it's, never happened, right, Chuck? It's funny you should mention that. My my father was uh, very understanding, whatever my grades were, I think because oh. his grades probably weren't always the best. My mother, on the other <laughs> hand, was like a hawk. Oh, so my. anytime there was a grade that wasn't quite where it should be, she would definitely call that out. So the there was a, a certain rigor and expectation <laughs> that was part of my childhood, no question. <laughs> Kind of like some drilling down going on to some of those late evenings and homework, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And what about outside the class? Were you involved in sports, music, debate, theater? What other kinds of things did you get involved with as a kid? The uh, big hobby that I had was music. I did a lot yeah. with that. I took lessons on the clarinet, mm. saxophone, piano. Wow. And I also loved the outdoors. So I'd spent a lot of time hiking in the mountains, camping, and in the wintertime, skiing. 
Oh yeah. Love it. Love it. And, uh, what about entrepreneurial things? Uh, the things that you did as a kid, you know, the, uh, ubiquitous paper route or selling Christmas cards <laughs> at Christmas time, you know, this kind of stuff. Yes. And eventually it took me to a place uh, where my parents didn't quite know what to do with me. Um, <laughs> wow, this is an interesting story. All right. I want to well, hear it. <laughs> when you have two very intellectual academic parents right, and you have right. a son who's very entrepreneurially minded, yeah. after a while, as you are a kid growing up, you get to a point in your development where your parents kind of look at you and they're not sure what to do with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it started easily enough. I did have, and you're a paper the older route. of the two, right? Your, your yes. sister is younger, yes, right? Yes, yeah, that's so right. Yeah, the double edge. <laughs> yeah. And I did have a paper route. It was a, a little local paper called the town and country. And I vividly remember it because it would arrive at three or four in the morning wow. and I had to get those papers all folded up. And then I had oh, this yeah. great big carrier that I would put over my shoulder and I would just go from door to door all over the neighborhood. And, and at one point, you know, I was not that big until I reached adolescence that, that whole thing was almost as big as I was. <laughs> Probably <laughs> so weighed I about would, the same amount, right? Well, it sure felt like it. I mean, it was, it was, um, the closest I've ever been to being pregnant, right? You have all that weight on the front and you feel like you're going to fall over. But I, I also just had a natural predisposition for living entrepreneurially. And so when I got to high school, I loved cars. They were, uh, right. I guess you might almost call that a hobby of mine too. And yeah. English professors don't drive cool cars. We had a, <laughs> we, we had a, a 1976 Honda Accord and we oh, had a wow. 1981 Subaru GL wagon. And both of those are great, you know, <laughs> reliable little cars, cars. very practical. <laughs> but I was, I was admiring Porsches and Jaguars. Oh and, yeah. So in high school, as soon as I got my driver's license, I set up a little company called Chuck's Custom Car Cleaning. Ooh, in today's it. world, that would be auto detailing, but there sure. wasn't so much of an industry for that back then. But right, I right. would be hired by people who knew I was meticulous. I would, yeah, I would yeah. clean these cars inside out, top to bottom. I'd deoxidize the paint, shampoo the carpet. I'd even write down a list for them of all the things that I noticed that were wrong, you know, dings in wow. the fenders, lights yeah. that were burned out. But I took about three hours on average for each vehicle and I charged $75 a car. So I was making on average about $25 an hour. And this That's is in the 1980s. Yeah, not yeah. bad at all. I love it. I love it. That's so cool. And and what did you spend all that extra money on? Did you actually buy that dream car at one point or, or where did it all <laughs> well, go? Well, it took Chuck? a while to get to that. <laughs> the the uh, the money that I raised or earned, I started putting into a fund for college. And for that was yeah. pretty important because the place where I went to school ended up costing a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. And you kind of had your eyes on Harvard for some time, did you? Or how did you uh, end up choosing that? Uh, or, or did they choose you? I, it's kind of a sorting hat thing, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is a big sorting thing. And yep. and I'm sure it, it's very much that way today for I any of the, the more noted schools where you have right. a lot of applicants, more applicants than you do people who can attend. And I right. remember that I applied to eight different schools because I, wow. I didn't know where I would get in and where I wouldn't. I mean, typically for a lot of them, they'd take one applicant out of every 15, something like that. Sure. And I was fortunate. I was accepted across the board at all eight of those schools. And I, wow, at fantastic. the end of the day, I was debating between three schools. I love the atmosphere at Stanford, which had this team-based structure for, for student learning, which I thought right. was really neat. Princeton, 
I love because of the physical setting. It was oh, it was the quintessential campus. Ivy yeah. League campus, yeah. just yeah. gorgeous. Harvard, I loved because it was so cosmopolitan and there were so many things to do. And if there wasn't right. something you wanted to do, you were encouraged to go set it up for yourself. There you go. Yeah. And yeah. with the entrepreneurial predisposition that I had, I decided that I would go to Harvard and that's where I ended up studying. Yeah, awesome. Well, and Boston is just such a wonderful town. <clears throat> Went through the, the same thing with my daughter, who's graduated from Dartmouth actually next weekend. Oh, and, congratulations! Uh, we did the did the whole sorting thing, and uh, you know, fell in love with Princeton for the same areas. But you studied organizational development. Tell us a little bit about your choice uh, of that field of study. It's you know, it's so fun to say I studied organizational development. What most people don't know is that at the time I was a student there, there was not a major in that field. Oh, interesting. Okay. I wrestled with that because mm. I, I knew that I wanted to go into business, but Harvard as an undergraduate is a liberal arts program. Right. So I decided to get entrepreneurial and I petitioned the university to create my own major, oh, awesome. Awesome. which allowed me over a period of about a year to petition and then successfully establish the organizational development curriculum at Harvard for undergraduates. That's great. Which cool. today is their most popular undergraduate major, which wow. is remarkable to me. Yeah. Yeah. What was fun, it was housed in the psychology department, but it allowed me to take courses across the university, both at the undergraduate and the graduate level, including um, graduate schools like the business school, the divinity school, and so forth. And and it, it, great. it enabled a lot of things that seemed disparate to be connected together. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, I did the same thing at University of Oregon. Not quite the same level tier of university, but I got an international business degree, which they did not have. And that was kind of a political science, economics and, and business degree. And, and it's really fun kind of doing cross-disciplinary studies, isn't it? You must have enjoyed that a lot. I loved it yeah. because I often live in the overlaps. Right, right. I, I see right. connections and yeah. that's often been um, a good thing and a hard thing for me as a, a working professional because our corporate world is typically set up and structured in compartments and right. I tend to see across departments. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you went to P&G, great company. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Right. Um, I know that they heavily recruited Harvard. Did you kind of get pulled in through that uh, funnel or was that a company that you had your sights set on wanting to get into brand management? I knew nothing about Procter & Gamble right. when I was in school. But while I was at Harvard, I started another company. It was a laser printing business based <laughs> on what was then Apple Computer's brand new Macintosh computer and laser writer printer, which massively disrupted the, the whole typeset industry. Right. That's right. All the fonts and everything else. Yeah. Yes. And uh, desktop publishing and all that kind yeah. of thing. The, the uh, notoriety for that business, which had 12 employees from Harvard and Tufts, and I sold it to the university when I graduated. They still run it. And uh, there were some articles published about it in the Boston Globe and some cool. other uh, newspapers. And so Procter & Gamble's recruiting department found out about me through ah, that. So P&G right, had cool. reached out to me when I became a senior. And if they hadn't, I never would have considered the company. Yeah. And what attracted you to, to, to join them and, and move to Cincinnati? What attracted me was a concept that was half true. The, um, <laughs> I, I laugh only because I'm a proctoid and I know what you mean. I know where you're going to go with this. <laughs> 
So the guy who recruited me, his name uh, was Stan Howdy. I don't know if, mm. if you ever bumped into him, but he was uh, in their recruiting department. And right. he said, Chuck, if you work at Procter & Gamble, you're going to have the best of both worlds. You're going to mm. be assigned to a brand group, which will be small and entrepreneurial, Yet at the same time, you'll have the vast resources of this large multinational company. Right. So it can be intrapreneurial, mm. which was true to a degree. Yeah. So yeah. each brand group <laughs> did have a close-knit feel, and, and you certainly had a, a strong focus on your particular category and uh, brand product. On the other hand, P&G's operating style was not exactly... <laughs> <laughs> what I would call entrepreneurial. entrepreneurial. <laughs> Bureaucratic is probably a lot more like it. And, and you were in the paper division, of course, which is one of the most successful and, and largest divisions in the company. Right. What brands did you work on when you were there? Well, much to the horror of my parents, who had, had taken out a second mortgage on their house to send their son to Harvard with visions that I would also go into academia. Right, and of course, right. I move into the parochial Midwest and I take this position at Procter & Gamble. And then the company assigns me to toilet paper. Oh, goodness. Or at Procter & Gamble, what we call bath tissue. Right, of course. The, yeah. the brand to which I was assigned at the time was called White Cloud, which was mm. a super premium product. Yeah, yeah which to be honest was softer and thicker than anyone wanted to flush down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a struggling brand yeah. doing only $60 million a year in sales. And at the time that I was hired, my brand manager told me that he wanted me to bring an entrepreneurial spark to toilet paper. Mm. And I remember telling him at the time, I said, you know, that could be combustible. <laughs> which it was <laughs> i love it i love it and you spent about three years there now did you get some leadership experience there did you um have management responsibilities before you moved on to uh to gallo i did i was yeah. promoted into bounty paper towels oh yeah so i was sure. moving on up as All george right. jefferson used to say sure sure and i ended up uh, working both on Bounty Current and Bounty Future, uh, meaning that a uh, brand group on the one hand that focuses on the current product in the right. marketplace and another right. one focused on future products. That was uh, a lot of fun for me. It was an opportunity with expanded responsibilities to identify new niches, uh, work on substantially sized marketing campaigns, and have some tailored programs that dealt with problematic issues, areas mm. of the country where the product wasn't selling well and how to intervene and improve performance and things like that. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Awesome. And, and what led you to make that transition out to California? I met my wife at P&G mm -hmm. and yeah. Gerald was in uh, what's called or what was called product supply. Right. She ended up deciding to go back to graduate school and was admitted to Stanford University, where she decided to attend uh, yeah. and work towards a PhD. Right. So we ended up moving out to the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was one of those early times in my adult life where I'm starting to learn that there are some decisions in your career that aren't a me decision, they're a we decision. Mm -hmm. And we were so. trying to figure out how to juggle both of our careers. Yeah. It was uh, it was a major change. And at the mm -hmm. time that we moved, uh, the U.S. was involved in the first Iraq war with Saddam Hussein. Oh, yeah. Early and 90s, so there yeah. was um, mm -hmm. President George H.W. Bush had had kind of launched a military intervention there. That's and right. 
the timing wasn't great for me in terms of finding a job. And so I remember just trying to figure out the landscape of the San Francisco Bay Area. There are some cool companies out there, Levi Strauss, Ghirardelli Chocolates. uh, but Yeah, Del Monte. But the one that was hiring was Gallo. So I ended up becoming uh, somebody in management in varietal table wines at the Gallo Winery and made a massive shift in doing so, not just the kind of product, but the type of company. Whereas uh, P&G was publicly held, Gallo was privately held. It was truly a a huge family business with radically different dynamics. Did you move out to Modesto or did you commute from, um, from Stanford? We lived in the Livermore Pleasanton area, okay. which is yeah. kind of midway. My wife yeah. commuted into Palo Alto for Stanford and I would commute into Modesto. Right, right. Cool. Great. And you spent a couple of years there and then ended back up in Cincinnati. So tell us about how that transition took place. Well, that was an unexpected transition. And mm. to be honest, I would have stayed at Gallo and I would have stayed in California. However, my wife really struggled with the lifestyle in California. Yeah. She was had she a grown Midwesterner? up. She grew up. In yes, yeah. she yeah. grew up in this tiny little town in Ohio called Orville, where Smucker's Jams and Jellies oh, is yeah. headquartered. Sure. She was the first person in her family to go to college and uh, came from just, you know, very humble beginnings with a very close knit family. We move out to the Bay Area with kind of a um, a bedroom lifestyle, meaning right. that. You know, you would you would commute your way to wherever you were going, spend all day uh, at work, get home with commuting about eight at night, have dinner, and then it's time to go to bed and get up the next day and do the same thing again. And one day uh, she headed back to see her parents for a vacation. I, I stayed uh, behind and I picked her up at the airport in San Francisco. And this yeah. is, of course, before 9-11 and all the security restrictions. So I'm right, right. at the gate waiting for her to yep. get, get off the yep. plane. And she walks off and she's crying Mm. and she looks at me and she said, I hate California. (laughs) (laughs) The top of her lungs. (laughs) And that Uh, was the beginning of the end. Yeah. So we ended up moving back to Ohio. She wanted to be closer to her family. And that brought us back to Cincinnati because uh, Procter and Gamble wanted to rehire my wife in engineering. She's a very, very capable lady. And also as a female in engineering, which is, and is unusual, the company was really trying to diversify its workforce. And in my case, I took a management position at LensCrafters, which was headquartered in Cincinnati. Which actually happened to be founded by a bunch of ex-Proctor guys. Yes, that's right. (laughs) And uh, and unlike P&G had a more entrepreneurial vibe for sure. Yeah, many of those guys came from the food and beverage division, for which I've worked in. That's kind of a little piece of trivia. So, yes. so uh, uh, your wife's name is Jero, you'd mentioned? Gerald. And yes. she's still with uh, P&G? She just retired. Just retired. Oh, great for her. Cool, cool. So a long, long-standing career. Well, wonderful. So so back to Lens Crafters and then did that for about a year and a half or so. And that brings us to SkillSource. Um, let's just k- take a step back, though, a little bit. And I'd love to just ask you some of those things that I always like to kind of get into is, you know, before you kind of went entrepreneurial and, and, and started SkillSource, and I want to hear a lot more about that, you know, what were some of the leadership lessons that you, you kind of took along the way? If you, if you reflect back on those years, you know, three great companies, obviously Procter, Gallo, and Lens Crafters. And if you had to kind of distill, you know, some of the things that you learned most or best about, you know, working with people and leading them, what would have those been, Jack? Hmm. What a great question. I think looking back on it, 
each company taught me something different that was pretty significant mm. and and substantially different because each company was so different. They were all uh, industry leading firms. That's right. But culturally and operationally, they were substantially um, yeah. distinctive. Yeah. Yeah. The it, looking back at my days at Procter & Gamble, one of the key leadership things I took away from there was their concept of promote from within and developing talent, right. yeah. which yeah. Um, is a very significant aspect of P&G's culture. But more mm -hmm. generally, I think it's a, in my experience, it's a very valuable way to understand that if you get the right people into an organization and invest in their development over time, they become very significant long-term contributors. Right. They carry an institutional knowledge of the business that enables you as a leader, not just to optimize productivity, but to fortify your culture because they become culture carriers. So true. For Gallo, the key thing that I took away from that was, was the critical nature of grit. Hmm. Let me explain. Yeah. Um, the backstory with the Gallo winery, which is actually a tragedy, uh, is that coming out of the Great Depression uh, because of just economic conditions, Ernest Gallo's father in desperation came home one day, shot his wife to death and then shot himself. It was a oh double suicide. Wow. And Ernest Gallo, who became my boss. Uh, as a very young teenager walks in on his dead parents and suddenly becomes head of household for his wow. siblings wow. with no means of support. He walks into a public library and discovers a book on growing grapes and decides that the way he's going to support his family is to start a wine business that could make enough money that they could keep a roof over their heads. And how old was he at the time? I believe he was 14. <laughs> Goodness. If, if you can just imagine that. Oh, so Ernest was driven. And although he was a man of immense wealth, he lived very frugally, I yeah. think in part because those early traumatic days yeah, just, had yeah. pressed him so much. Imagine I remember yeah. he drove a, a late model Cadillac when I took a job <laughs> there. It was probably almost 20 years old. And it was repaired by some of the, the, the maintenance men that were on the facility at Gallo, and they used duct tape to, oh to hold the thing together. But Ernest refused to get a new car. And uh, he was re absolutely relentless. And Julio I, was his brother, I believe. Right? Julio must was been, his, must brother. his younger brother. Yes, perhaps. I got to know Julio. Yeah. Their personalities yeah. were radically different. Julio yeah. was much more mellow. Ernest... Yeah. <laughs> Ernest was very intense, but, yeah. but this drive to perform, yeah. Um, yeah. which to be honest, had this tragic root and had some fear at the center of it. Oh, yeah. It oh, nonetheless yeah. is a, in my experience, a critical quality for a leader mm. to have the grit to persevere in trying circumstances. And Ernest absolutely did that. Right over the, and um, then lens crafters. Yeah. Well, the, the biggest lesson I took away from lens crafters was the critical nature of staying true to your vision. Mm. At the time I was hired there, the company had just established a second decade vision for the business to be the best at helping the world to see. Very mm. aspirational. Unfortunately, the company at the time was owned by U.S. Shoe Corporation. That's right. Yeah. And U.S. Shoe was on its deathbed. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time I took the job. But within months of being hired, 
Lens Crafters sold out its international division. Think about this. The vision is to be the best at helping the world to see, but you're selling your global operations. Yeah. And we began to compromise all kinds of long-term investments mm. for lens crafters in order to funnel cash to U.S. Shoe, which was hemorrhaging mm. cash yeah. at the time. I think lens crafters one one of the only, if if not the only, profitable subsidiary, if I recall that. It was the only yeah. profitable yeah. Right. subsidiary. Right. Right. So the company that I thought I was being hired yeah. into and the company I actually worked in were two very different firms. Mm -hmm. Lens Crafters wasn't in a position to be its best version of itself, not even yeah. close. Mm -hmm. What I took away from that from a leadership point of view is staying true to your vision. Because the minute you walk away from the purpose that grounds you, you start to lose ground. Right. So true. So, so from those foundations, SkillSource was founded. And I think you left about a year and a half or so after joining Lens Crafters. What, what, what was the need that you saw in the marketplace that, that motivated you to uh, set up SkillSource? So maybe before you answer that question, tell us a little bit about what SkillSource is. Many of our audience may not know, you know exactly what you do with SkillSource. Sure. SkillSource today is a consultancy that focuses on three things. Mm. developing winning strategies, strong leaders, and healthy cultures. Mm. Beautiful. That is an evolution of the business model when we first launched back yeah. in 1995. Where I found myself was in a place of real frustration at Lens Crafters because yeah. I had wanted to work in an aspirational company, yeah. but it was much more of a perspirational season <laughs> in that business's existence. <laughs> and, and I was just chafing uh, in that environment. What yeah. ended up happening was my decision to go out on my own. And again, I had entrepreneurial bones to begin with. Right. What I thought I could do would be to take some of the disciplines that I had learned from these big companies mm. and bring them to smaller businesses at an yeah. affordable price. Yeah. The idea was to create a virtual corporation where I'd be the only employee and I would hire contractors, right. assemble them in teams to go serve in clients so that we could help them with their problems. And in those early days, that was a while not radical, that was a very unusual model for business mm. because yeah. the idea was that you would uh, start out as a single shingle. And then as soon as you could, you'd start hiring employees and you'd build and, a yeah, bench a and, yeah. and right, all of right. that. And I yeah. was doing exactly the opposite. My mm. thinking was if, if I could keep the contractor model, then I could bring in the best people for a given job and not sort right. of have to use the people who were my employees. Yeah. I could keep the overhead lower and then I could charge less on an hourly or a project basis to right. the client, which right. would enable me to work with them for a more extended period of time and ensure that we delivered results. Mm. That well was the mindset. Model. <laughs> yes, well I mean, your time. Yeah. today yeah. it's commonplace, but right. back then right. it was really an aberration. And who are you serving? Was it middle market companies, other consumer brand companies? Did you kind of stick to what you knew in those early these, days? These were typically what I'll loosely call emerging small businesses. They right. had gone through startup. They had yeah. gone through the early challenges of viability, and they were now struggling with what I'd call capability, how you hit yeah. on all cylinders. There yeah. were typically certain areas of the business that worked great. 
and others that didn't. Um, classic example would be a firm with a hard-charging visionary CEO who's very charismatic and sells a whole bunch of business that he doesn't have the operational infrastructure to support. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and then his staff, you know, is dying on the vine trying to keep up with the founder, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I really and, enjoyed that. Yeah, and would you would you kind of move into, you know, kind of, um, or, or you and your people move into kind of uh, uh, interim C-suite positions? I mean, that's what we'd call them today. I'm sure you didn't call them back then, though. But, you know, in other words, a person would come in and kind of be that full-time marketing person for a while and then move out? Or, or was it really much more of a consultancy type of approach? Great question. The, the way that I positioned myself at the time was think of uh, me and think of skill sources. We're on your team, but we're not on your payroll. Yeah, right. You, you, we earn our keep every month as we're working on projects of different kinds. And the, the neat thing about it was that because our price point was affordable, I would typically and our team would typically stay with the clients for months and sometimes yeah. years. So we, yeah, we right. became what today would be called outsourced or fractional. Yeah. Right, leadership. Right, right. But back then we didn't have those terms. It right, was more right. just, you know, we are an affordable way to be part of your company, even though we're not officially employees. And we we built the kind of relationships that enabled us to be full-fledged members. I mean, they really thought of us as part of their team. We were invited to their annual gatherings and key meetings and stuff like that. The the, the key thing that I learned though in those early years was that there was this gap between the original business model and the needs that the clients really had. Hmm. Because in the early days, my thinking was help them develop a strong strategic direction and then help them implement it. And if I just do that, plan the work and work the plan, then we would have delivered what they needed. What I didn't realize going into it was the extent to which having a great strategy was not enough. Because we would put these plans together that had tremendous promise, but then I would come back as that outsourced person every month or every quarter or whatever the rhythm was, and I would discover that either things hadn't been implemented right. or they'd been implemented very poorly. Poorly, yeah. Many yeah. times the, the uh, failures were, to me, just remarkable in that they were so avoidable. And I started right. digging. It's like, what's going wrong? Right. What I discovered was two root causes. One was poor leadership, Hmm. people that just didn't know how to take a project and lead it through an organization. The other root cause problem was toxic culture, Hmm. where people were so demotivated that even if there was a plan to make things better, they didn't start working on that plan, even though it would have been to their benefit. Right. So did that lead lead to some evolution in terms of how you approach skill source over the years? Yes, that's why our model today is focused on winning strategies, strong leaders, and healthy cultures, because it's become our experience that like a stool with three legs, if any one of those is missing, the stool falls over. So true. Yeah, so true. And are your consultants uh, still the same model contractors now that will go out and and work with the companies in that regard? You still follow yes. that same model? Mm-hmm. Yes. And are they are they dedicated to those companies? In other words, do they have multiple assignments or do they pretty much put their full time into that company, you know, days, weeks, months, years on end? 
they're fractional. So they right. are assigned to that company and typically will stay with them for an extended period of time, but they also serve many other companies. They may have other companies. Or, yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Wonderful. And then most recently, well, still about 18 years ago, <laughs> you've been doing this 25, 26 years, but at work on purpose, which is kind of how our paths cross. Tell us a little bit about that, what that is, and, and, you know, kind of bring it back to your ministry. I went through a really interesting journey that brought me to this place of pondering faith life brought into mm. work life. When I well, let's rewind a little bit. So, so you mentioned earlier on that you didn't necessarily grow up in a particularly Christian or religious household. Did you did you come to Christ later in life, or what, what, you know, tell us a little bit about that journey, or was it about that same time? Actually, it was an extended period of time, and yeah. it started on the uh, toilet paper business at Procter and Gamble. Right, cool. The brand group to which I was assigned really was struggling so badly that within about six to nine months after I'd been hired, all of my brand group had left. Wow. And I was left as the senior person still on that product yeah. and ended up creating a strategy for it to succeed by taking 30 sheets off of the roll. And we wound the roll more loosely. So the diameter was the, sh the same, you right. know, as before the sheet count reduction. But I looked at the project and I was out there marketing it as new and improved, new because it had 30 fewer sheets and improved because we took a tiny increase in the thickness of the paper. And there's nothing illegal about doing that. Companies do stuff like that all the time. It's an right. indirect price increase. However, I felt so empty doing mm. that kind of project work. And I remember one day walking home from work and thinking to myself, I'm going to get promoted for short sheeting the consumer. <laughs> <laughs> Not a particularly motivating thought. <laughs> no, I I essentially went through a midlife crisis in my mm. early 20s. Yeah. Wow. And when I got back to my apartment, I started pondering some memories back when I had been at Harvard University and had made friends with people from all over the world, representing mm. all the faith traditions of the world. And they mm. shared their faith testimonies, as I would now describe it. At the time, they were just conversations. Right. But my point is that I thought that night uh, after this uh, awakening of sorts at Procter & Gamble that I needed to figure out if there was some sort of a spiritual core or center to my life, some kind of foundation that could help me feel complete or, mm. or whole, even uh, in seasons where work wasn't all it was cut out to be and so forth. And it launched for me a 10-year project where I was studying comparative world religion Ooh. and philosophy. Wow. And that process continued all through my time at Procter & Gamble, at the Gallo Winery, yeah. Yeah. at LensCrafters, and then yeah. starting this little consultancy called SkillSource. Yeah. Yeah. So my point in short is that my struggles with work life and what a, a career should be that feels like it's it was what you were created for or mm. born for led me into a spiritual search that then led me as a Christian. So I commit my life to Christ in my mm. early 30s. Wow, leads cool. me as a Christian to figure out how to help myself and other people yeah. integrate yeah. faith and work. Wow, that's fabulous. And so again, uh, At Work on Purpose came out of that journey and uh, your work also at SkillSource, I, I assume, right? I mean, yes. tell us a little bit about at work, perhaps, and give us you know, what that looks like and what do you do with that? The basic premise behind at work on purpose is that if you believe in a God, 
and you believe in the God that Christianity brings forward, then you would believe that God creates us for a purpose in our lives, that we aren't created aimlessly, we're created directionally, that there's a direction, a path, and a contribution for us to make in the world. With the implication of that is that we shouldn't just go get a job and succeed in a career. We should look for the work that could enable us to best serve the world Mm -hmm. in the way that God created us. That's a completely different way of thinking about work life. So at work on purpose is a ministry guiding working Christians to find and fulfill God's call on their lives at work. Mm. And and how do you execute that? Is that organized as a nonprofit? Do you, you know, kind of mentor and disciple others that are in the workplace? Do they approach you? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. It's in many ways across the city of Cincinnati, it's akin to a network mm-hmm. of working Christians who know each other through relationship and they connect together, not just in their places of work, but across the city, just as Christians who are working in the private public social sectors. In terms of programmatic emphasis, what we do is first to come alongside working Christians in what we describe as purposeful employment. Sometimes uh, people reach out to us when they've lost a job and they don't just want to get another job. They're trying to find the right job, the job that God would have for them. Other times they're in a job, but they feel like it it's empty. They don't like it and they don't know what to do about that. But regardless, we come alongside those people in a moment of frustration and dissatisfaction and help them reroute into what we call purposeful employment. Then from there, we can walk with them into building out what that looks like. And is that structured as a nonprofit or a for-profit consultancy? It's a not-for-profit organization, Mm -hmm. which essentially then means that I lead to very separate kinds of organizations. SkillSource is a for-profit company, and it serves clients who are all over the map spiritually. And At Work on Purpose is a nonprofit organization Mm -hmm. that serves working Christians. Yeah, fantastic. And and those Christians that would come to you with those types of issues, do they pay a fee? You know, do do how do they kind of engage with you on that? Or is that is it all volunteer that you have mentors and disciples that help others? Or is it something you do exclusively with others? It's both and. Yeah. When they first reach out to us, it's in the beginning the opportunity to connect them into a community of working Christians. And there isn't a charge for that. That's, that's free. Sure. And sometimes they want more support. They want a coach that can help them think through what work God might have for them or how they can resolve issues they have at work. And so in a, in a sense, there's an a la carte system where there are certain services that they can sign up for where there is a tuition or, or a fee Right. But then a lot of other stuff that is done by volunteers and and yeah. free of charge. Yeah. So you've got some other volunteers that are involved with that. that yes. That help that along. Fantastic. Great. Wonderful work. Well, listen, Chuck, this has been a, a tremendous uh, conversation. And, and I can't believe we're uh, almost out of time here. But we always ask our guests one last question. And that's, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone that, you know, maybe has their eyes on the corner office or maybe wants to become an entrepreneur like yourself? 
And, you know, you've got such an interesting background in that you work for, you know, three wonderful companies of which laid these great foundations that you've explained for us and, and then decided to go out on your own. And you've obviously done that successful for years and years now. You know, what, what would you say someone who's maybe, you know, in those, in those early thirties, as we've gone through and, you know, kind of finding our own path and maybe thinking about some of those things themselves, what would you tell them? What would you advise them to do to, you know, help them sort out whether, you know, going to, uh, uh, a startup and, you know, doing something on their own or, or perhaps following their dream or, you know, maybe sticking with it in the corporate environment. You know, what were some of the questions that you had asked yourself, I guess, is what I'm getting at right. that would help them guide their journey. I remember years ago with Stephen Covey's seven habits of mm. highly effective people that he talked about the concept of beginning with the end in mind. Yeah. 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 I believe that it's really important to ask ourselves the question, where do I want to end up at the end of my working days? Yeah, yeah. And that is a question of legacy. That's right. If I'm looking back on decades of work life, what legacy do I want to leave behind? What would I like people to say about the work mm. that I did, the projects that I led, the contributions that I made? I have found for me, it's the, for, it's the dash, right? You know, yeah. we talk about the dash on the, on the, yeah. it's the dash. <laughs> it's the dash between this is the year I entered the workforce yeah. and this is yeah. when I ended right. uh, my working career. And the dash is all that stuff in the middle. And it, to yeah. me, it's very much about legacy. And I believe mm. that our most important legacy is service. Mm. How are we taking ourselves to serve others to leave the world better than we found it. And each of us have to ask that own question because there are different paths to serve, right? Always different paths to serve. Yes. Chuck Bradford, president at Skillsource and founder of At Work on Purpose. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be part of this today. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.